Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have to come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Thank you, Jerry. Good evening, church. So, the longer I live, the more I find out that relational conflict is inevitable in my family, in friends, in the workplace, wherever you go, the longer you live, I think all of us find that we inevitably run into conflict. And this evening, we're going to get to talk about the conflict that arises when we become followers of Jesus. So when we follow Christ, the effect is that we end up with more conflict in our lives in some ways than we would have otherwise had. For me, I, I, I reflect back on a friend I had. We, we met in second grade, went to middle school together, went to high school together, Kept hanging out after high school, through college, early adulthood. Took trips together, went to Disney World once together. Um, really good friend. A few years ago, suddenly, he stopped connecting with me. Stopped answering my texts. Stopped returning my calls. And I kept reaching out to him. I couldn't get a hold of him. Finally, I reached out to him and just said, Hey, man, is there something I did that was wrong to you? Something I need to apologize for? Something that I need to set right? And he responded and said to me, no, there's nothing wrong that you did. I just felt like over the course of the last few years, we had become different people. And as a result, he thought that the relationship was better to end. And as I thought back on it, he was right. He had an agenda, certain interests that he had involved himself in, certain hobbies that he really wanted me to be involved in. But I had other priorities. And as a result, that very special relationship that had lasted so long came to an end. It's one example of conflict that comes and division that comes when you follow Jesus. So I want to ask this this evening this question. How do we think through the conflict that we face as followers of Jesus? And how do we respond when it comes up? 
How do we think through the conflict that we will face as followers of Jesus? And how do we respond when it comes up? I want us to take a look at this passage now because Jesus is going to answer this very question for us. Verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. All right, I bet a few of us are scratching our heads right now, wondering, what does this verse mean? What is Jesus talking about? He came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. One way Jesus likes to talk is with imagery and symbolism to make a point. And the best way to interpret the symbols and the imagery that Jesus uses is to look where else in that book, where else in that gospel that same imagery had been used. We should use scripture as our guide to interpret scripture. So if we look back earlier in the gospel of Luke and think, where does this idea of fire come up? Where does this idea of fire come up beforehand in this book, it takes us back to the ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 3. John the Baptist talks about fire in chapter 3 when he's talking about Jesus' ministry. So here it is. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John is addressing the crowds, and he's saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. This image of fire is being used in two ways. The first is Jesus says, I will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit comes and purifies God's people. Fire refines. Fire purifies. And Jesus' ministry is so powerful that it purifies people. It purifies people who come to him in repentance and faith. It purifies even the worst sins you could ever commit. If you're wondering if you've ever sinned so much that God can't help you, the answer is no. He can. He can purify you with the power with which fire burns. He has an unstoppable power to purify his people. Satan's accusations... His hatred cannot stop God's purpose to purify you if you come to him in repentance and faith. If you come to him in repentance and faith this evening, I promise you, you will be purified. You will be purified right away with the power of the Holy Spirit. But fire is used another way in in these verses. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus says next? His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the shaft he will burn in unquenchable fire. Fire also symbolizes the judgment of God that comes on those who will not repent. Jesus' heart is to purify everyone who comes to him, but those who refuse to come to him, 
who insist on not believing in him. Rather than being purified, they will be destroyed. Fire is wonderful. It's such, it changed the way humans have lived forever. It's such a gift, and it's also so dangerous, depending on how you treat it, depending on how you respond to it. And friends, there's no more important decision any of us will ever make in our lives than how we respond to Jesus. Based on how we respond to Jesus, we will either be purified or destroyed. You have a thousand decisions to make in your lifetime. And every one of them will have consequences every day. But nothing will have a consequence like how we respond to Jesus, and whether it's with faith and repentance or resistance. How we respond to Jesus will determine whether or not he purifies us and the greatest thing to ever happen happens to us, or if we resist him and we're destroyed. Jesus is packing all this meaning into this little phrase that he came to cast fire on the earth. He came to cast fire on the earth, and there's two ways to respond. There's only two roads we can travel. One is repentance, turning from our sin and turning towards him. Turning from ourself as Lord, turning to him as Lord. And faith, trusting that he's enough for us. Trusting that when we fail, he never fails. Trusting that when we sin, he forgives. That's one response. And the other is to push him away and wander from him in unbelief. And that response determines everything forever. So Jesus is very, very direct in this passage. And he is laying down two very distinct paths. And he uses this image of fire to show us this. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. Jesus is looking forward to the future, to the day he comes back. And all of his purposes are fulfilled. He has an eagerness for that day. He has an earnestness for that day. And church, may we have an eagerness and an earnestness for that day when we're finally fully purified. When we're saved to sin no more. When all God's elect, all of God's people are with us, his multi-ethnic people from every tribe and tongue around the whole world is with us in our Father's presence forever. Were that this fire was already kindled, were that God's purposes had come to pass. God wants us to live with passion. He wants us to live with longing. He wants us to live with anticipation. So much of the world, they live in a stupor. They live in a stupor. Numbed by social media, numbed by movies, numbed by drugs, numbed by all sorts of ways to just avoid thinking about reality. And on the opposite end, God wants us to live with passion. God wants us to yearn for the day Jesus comes back. God wants us to yearn to see other people purified and refined. He wants us to have hearts that burn with passion and love for other people. Just like Christ's. Every one of us. Not living an ordinary life, but a life where you feel the fire and power of Christ purifying you and being used by him to purify other people. Were that it were already kindled. So there should be this desire of our hearts. And then in verse 50, Jesus says, 
I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's another puzzling verse, isn't it? Oh, what is Jesus talking about? Baptism is a word that simply means immersion. Okay? So when we baptize someone, they are immersed in the water. They go all the way down in the water, and they come up. Now, the word baptism can be used in the Bible in a number of ways. We just, we just heard one other one. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So baptism can be an immersion in water when you become a Christian to symbolize that you became a Christian. Baptism can be an immersion in God's renewing power as he cleanses and purifies us from our sins. Here, Jesus is looking forward to the cross. And he's calling it a baptism that he has to be baptized with. I say he's looking forward to the cross because he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What else would he have distress about at this point in his ministry until it is accomplished except the cross? And he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, which means that he will be immersed. When Jesus is going to the cross, he will be immersed in the wrath of God. That's his baptism. Church, our baptism is a baptism of cleansing and purity and renewal because his baptism was one of judgment and wrath and suffering. Friends, we get to be immersed in the mercy of God because Jesus was immersed in the judgment of God. That's what he's saying. I'm going to take all of the judgment of God upon myself and immerse myself in it so that I can immerse you in the cleansing, the refining, the renewal of God's forgiveness. That's the baptism he has to be baptized with. And he says, how great is my distress until it's accomplished. His heart, his mind is fixed on this moment is fixed forward towards the cross. And us on this side of the cross, our hearts and minds should be fixed back upon it. We should be fixed on the moment that Jesus was immersed in the wrath of God so that we could be immersed in the mercy of God. And one area I'm challenged to grow as I read these verses is that I've so long I've understood the gospel like, I've explained it to hundreds of people. I've thought about it all the time. And so often I think about it, but I don't marvel at it. I'm not in awe of it. I'm not wondering at what Jesus did. And church, I want us to daily be in awe of Jesus and what he did and how much he suffered so he could purify us and how much he gave for us so that he could give us life. If we're going to have this heart of passion for Jesus, it comes from being in awe of the work of Jesus. He, there is no limit that he would have in order to win us for himself. None at all. He took the full wrath of God so that he could give us the full purification and forgiveness of God. That's a baptism with which he was baptized with and how great is his distress until it was accomplished. So these two verses right here, 
are going to explain what Jesus says next. These are the reason why Jesus is going to say what he's going to say next. So Jesus comes, and he lays down a dividing line. and says, there are two ways to respond to me. Two ways to respond to my crucifixion. Two ways to respond to my death. Either you repent and come to me, or you refuse and turn from me. And that explains what Jesus says in the next verse. Verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man, once again, these are tough verses. You hear that question, and it's a little surprising that Jesus says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? Because the question, or the answer that kind of comes into my mind as I study this is, well, yeah. (laughs) Isn't that exactly what the Bible says, Jesus, that when you come, you're going to bring peace? Earlier on in Luke, the, when Jesus shows up, the angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it seems like, as we read the rest of Luke, it seems like the reason Jesus came was to bring peace, which makes this very puzzling that he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, but I tell you, rather, division. What, what, what is going on here, Jesus? What are you trying to tell us? And as you read the Gospel of Luke, as you think and pray through the scriptures, what I, what I think what's going on is this. That Jesus did come to bring peace. Okay? He did come to bring peace. All of us had a broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. Every last one of us. The worst thing imaginable is that you be out of a relationship with the God who created you. And Jesus came and brought peace to that relationship for us, didn't he? And when you're a human being and you're in your sin, you're at division with literally everyone you know. You might get along with them, but there isn't a true love and affection for them like you have for other believers. There's, there's these competing agendas, these competing objectives that bring division from one another. And what Jesus does is he radically saves us into a family where we have peace with each other. So now I have peace with us, or with you, or however you say that. And you have peace with one another because of the finished work of Christ. He did come to bring peace, and he has brought peace, and he's brought peace to those of us who are sitting here in this room trusting in him. And I praise him for that. I praise him for the peace that he's brought. And yet, and yet, until he comes again, people will respond to Jesus in two different ways. One way is turning towards him and trusting him, and one way is turning away from him. And those two groups of people, those two groups of people that are coexisting in the same spaces together in the world, There's division between them, isn't there? There's conflict between them. 
There is a conflict between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Whether or not it's conscious, however subtly or unsubtly it plays out, there is a conflict right now between the world and between the followers of God. And each of us are in this conflict. You're in this conflict right now. You're on one side of this conflict. I, those who are opposed to Christ and those who love Christ. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. Why, why is this a conflict? The reason it's a conflict is because these two different groups, each of them has a different ultimate allegiance. So as much as you want to get along with someone, if they have a different ultimate allegiance than you have, and you're going this way and they're going that way, there's inevitably going to be conflict, isn't there? You're not ultimately at peace with each other. You're not ultimately at unity with each other. So church, while we are called to love the world, I want to get something out there in the open for us. Do not expect life without conflict. Don't expect to follow Jesus and not to come into conflict with people. Even people you love the most. We would like to contain this fault line to comfortable places, but where does Jesus describe it as unfolding? In the household, in the family. He says, for from now on, in one house there will be Five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The conflict Jesus is talking about comes even into families. There's There's no place in the history of the world where there has been deeper unity than in the family. So if you go to any culture, if you go to any point in history, and you look there, you'll find that people have loyalty to their families. I'm sure you have loyalty to your family. I'm sure your neighbors have loyalty to your family. I'm sure your Somali neighbors have loyalty to your family. I'm sure your Norwegian neighbors have loyalty to their families. Something that's natural to people. And what Jesus is saying is that when I become your highest loyalty, when I become your highest allegiance, there will be conflict that comes even into the family. There is no place, church, no place in this world where we can avoid conflict because it seeps into everything and everywhere based off of how people are responding to Jesus. So I know, I know some of you have had conflict with your families over following Jesus. I know you have. I know people who have joined this church who their parents disowned them because they became Christians. And so Jesus is not ignorant at all about the reality of following him He's saying right here that it will cost you relationships to be his disciple. It will cost you relationships to be his disciple. 
And it's comforting to know that he went through the exact same thing. It cost him relationships to follow his father's will. If you remember, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And what happens to him there? He's almost stoned. He's almost stoned in his hometown, presumably by his relatives. So I don't know if any of your relatives have tried to stone you, and in some cases, maybe they have. For some people in the Twin Cities, that's a reality. If they follow Jesus, there is physical violence they could face. But Jesus is not ignorant of the tension that happens when we become a follower of his. So to be a follower of Jesus, we have to sacrifice our idol of getting along with everyone all the time. I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which means I love to get along with people. And I will go through great lengths to get along with people. And I always feel uncomfortable when there's disunity. But Jesus is saying, hey, Ross, guess what? To be my follower means you're going to face disunity with people. It means you're going to face conflict. Jesus is calling us, church, to value unity with him above avoiding conflict with others. Jesus is calling us to value unity with him above avoiding conflict with other people. That's what he's calling you to this evening. So what does that look like? What does that look like for us to value unity with Jesus above avoiding conflict with others? For some of us, it's going to look like rejection from family for following Jesus. For some of us, it's going to look like losing friendships for following Jesus. But the one place of division that I think will have will face the most of all is whether or not we call friends and family to repentance. That's where the rubber is going to meet the road. Are you willing to have hard conversations with people and call them to repentance? We see that throughout this gospel, Jesus does that very thing. He's constantly facing conflict and he's constantly calling people to repentance. He's constantly facing rejection and he's constantly calling people to become obedient to him and to his father. So church, I want to ask you this evening, who have you been avoiding having a tough conversation with that you know you're supposed to have with someone? Who have you not been bringing up following Jesus with? even though you know you're supposed to have that conversation. That's a challenge Jesus has for us when he says, I did not come to bring peace, but division. I did not come to bring peace, but division. He's calling us to have a deeper allegiance to him than we have to getting along with everyone. When we come into conflict with others, we are not actually creating conflict with them. We're exposing the conflict that already exists. I want to be very clear about that. When you're calling someone else to repentance, you are not creating division with them. You're not creating conflict with them. 
you are exposing conflict, you're exposing division that already exists. And they need to hear about it lest they perish without being reconciled with their father. So to expose that conflict is the most loving thing that you can do of all for someone else who's living apart from God. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was just thinking, praise God that Jesus didn't avoid conflict with me. If he avoided conflict with me, if he avoided calling me to repent, I wouldn't be a Christian and neither would you. Jesus did not avoid conflict with you because he cared about you. So what does that say about whether or not we should avoid conflict with others over this issue? I remember a family Christmas a few years ago. I was sitting beside my uncle, and he was explaining about the church that he went to and explaining that he was an atheist. He, just, he, he didn't believe in God. And by God's grace, I had the boldness in that setting to call him to faith and, and to explain to him why that, that's a disastrous view to have and why he needs to know and trust Christ. And I remember his daughter sitting beside me over here on this side of me. And as we started to disagree about this issue, she started to say to me and to him, guys, just stop, stop, stop. Let's just get along. Like, let's not have any division, any disunity here at this gathering. But, but a few years later, that relative of mine, he, he dropped dead while he's cooking eggs in the morning. So just a reminder to us that it's urgent that we tell people they need to repent. It's urgent that we let them know that they need Christ. And, and we must not avoid tough conversations because we value unity with people over their souls and because we value comfort over intimacy with our Savior. One thing that happens when conflict comes up and we're rejected is that we end up enjoying more intimacy with Jesus. You, the more you're rejected for doing his will, the more you experience him. You see his lifestyle, through, as he goes from conflict to conflict, from rejection to rejection, he ends up with perfect intimacy with his father throughout the process. Friends, we are cheating ourselves out of intimacy with God when we don't have tough conversations with other people. We are cheating ourselves out of intimacy with God when we don't have tough conversations with other people. I think, I know this from experience, I hope we all know this from experience, that when you're having conversations, when you're calling people to repentance and you're talking about the things of God, are those not the moments you feel closest to Him? Aren't those the times in your life where you feel closest to Him? When you are boldly calling people to come to Him? I know it's the case for me. The longer I go without having these conversations with others, the further and further I feel for my Father. And the more bold I am, the more dependent on the Spirit I am to have these conversations with others, the closer to Him I feel. I want that for us. I want that for you. I want that for our church. So who is God calling you to be bold with? 
and the call to repentance whom you have not called to repentance yet. I want to say a word about how we have division with other people. It's different than worldly division. Do you know that? We, when we divide with people, it should feel a lot different than when they have conflict with their coworkers, conflict with their families, conflict with other people in the world. Because the only conflict that we try to have with other people is gospel-centered conflict. Gospel-centered conflict. What do I mean by that? I mean that what we disagree about with others and how we disagree with others is going to be shaped always by Christ. So when you disagree with family, with friends, with coworkers, you need to ask yourself, what am I disagreeing about? If you find yourself in an emotional debate about COVID with an unbeliever, that's right. <laughs> it's, time, it, it's time to pivot away from that conversation. If you find yourself in an emotional debate about politics with an unbeliever, it's time to pivot away from that conversation. Friends, you only have so much relational capital with your family and friends, and if you use it disagreeing about things that are not the gospel, they will be less able to hear you call them to faith and repentance. They'll be less able to listen to you and hear your heart when you're trying to love them and tell them to trust in Christ. It's never wrong to have a discussion with someone else about these things. But you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? When it gets a little emotional and it starts to feel a little personal, and all of a sudden it turned that corner from being just a discussion to being an argument. What does your pride tell you to do in those moments? Your pride wants to win, but you need to lose. You need to turn away from those conversations and pivot away from them and find some way to... Avoid that disagreement so that there's an opportunity to disagree about the things that matter most. To disagree about the things that matter forever. I don't want to disagree about sports. I don't want to disagree about music or politics. I don't want to disagree about what we're having for dinner. When we could disagree instead about things that matter forever and ever and use all my relational capital all of the opportunity I have to speak into someone's life, speaking about those things. So let's speak about the things that matter the most. The most. Let's disagree about the things that matter the most. The most. And leave our personal agendas, our hobby horses, our, our interesting areas behind us. And this is an area I need to grow in because I love stirring the pot. Some of you know this. And it's an area where I need to avoid that, especially among people who don't know Christ yet, so that all of my leverage and all my capital can be about telling them about Jesus. You see what I mean when I say gospel-centered division? It's gospel-centered because it's meant to unify them with Jesus and unify them with their Father. It's never division that's meant to ultimately separate you from someone else. It's division that's meant to win them into unity with you and with God. It's a distinct kind of division. Worldly division is you try to dominate and beat other people who disagree with you to get your way. In gospel division, you try to serve them so that they can know God and love him. 
Two very different kinds of division. The second way our division should be different than the way the world divides is the manner of our division, the way, the way we go about it. So we have a message that we want everyone to believe, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And our method of conveying that message should be no less loving, no less patient, no less kind than Jesus was to us. Because if the way we convey Jesus is not like Jesus, you will undermine him in their eyes. None of us want to undermine Jesus in other people's eyes. None of you do. You, you want other people to see you and to see what Jesus is like. Don't you? And when you disagree with them, even if you're disagreeing with them about the right thing, but your manner is ungodly, you're undermining your message and you're undermining your Savior in their eyes. The way that we disagree about the gospel with others should be as humble as the Jesus we want them to believe in. They should feel what Jesus is like in the way that we disagree with them. If they don't feel what Jesus is like, it doesn't matter how clear you are about him, they're going to end up rejecting you and rejecting him because of the way you're treating them. When I'm, when I'm disagreeing with someone about Christ and I'm calling them to repentance, what I'm aiming to do is make sure that if they walk away, if they reject my message, it isn't because I did something and they rejected me. It's only because they rejected Jesus. What I'm trying to say is don't get in the way of Christ. Don't get in the way of Christ by being the problem. In the scriptures, we see boldness and humility paired together completely. The Lord wants you to be bold as a lion, but humble and gentle as a lamb, all at the same time. That's what Christian division looks like. When someone is feeling you have conflict with them, feeling you have division with them, it should almost feel like they're just getting loved by you. <laughs> like they almost shouldn't be able to tell that they should because you're being clear that they need to repent. But the manner you do it is so warm, so inviting, so patient, that they are going to struggle to conclude that you're their enemy. They're going to struggle to conclude that you think you're superior to them. Because the way you're talking to them is as humble as a savior you're inviting them to believe in. If we are not humble like Jesus, we're inadequate messengers. I, I just think about how he tells us to treat our enemies earlier on in this book. How much more our family, friends, and coworkers who are trying to win to him. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus, how Jesus treats his enemies. And if that's the case, then how should we treat our friends and families and coworkers when we're trying to win them to Jesus? even when they're mean to you, especially when they're mean to you. 
when other people are mean to you and rejecting you and treating you with hostility and hatred and insults, that's the moment you have the chance to display Christ the most. Those are the moments where you can respond like Jesus the most. So don't miss those opportunities to respond like Christ when other people treat you with hostility. I want to make one distinction for us, which is that we do divide and we do have conflict with those who haven't repented yet over the issue of repentance. But that conflict should not seep into this church. Right? This, this, this passage, this verse, is not a call for us to have division among one another or to have conflict among one another. So please don't confuse it that way. Instead, we have to be unified with one another so that we're prepared to lovingly have conflict with our friends, families, and neighbors over the issues that matter most. Now, in these next few verses, Jesus is actually going to model some of these principles for us. He's going to model what this kind of division, what this kind of conflict looks like. Verse 54, he says, He said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So what's Jesus saying? He's saying your minds are working correctly. Right? You can, you can look at the weather and sense what's coming. But your hearts do not have the same kind of ability to interpret. Your head is working, but your heart is off. You can interpret the weather, but you can't interpret me. Friends, what he's saying is that if someone is struggling to come to Jesus, it is first and foremost not an intellectual problem, it's a heart problem. It's a heart problem that's keeping them from Christ. And what Jesus is doing here is he's focusing on their hearts. He's saying, you pretend to be spiritual people, but yet you are rejecting me and showing you to be thoroughly unspiritual. When Jesus enters into conflict with his opponents, it's over their heart's response to him. In the beginning of the sermon, they talked about Jesus, talking about two responses to him. And he is here talking about the exact same thing. How you respond to me is the issue that I want to disagree with you. He's not deviating into politics. He's not deviating into other forms of disagreement. He's keeping the focus on people's response to him. I mean, in the scriptures, there's a laundry list of things that people could disagree about. We see all sorts of conflict between Jews and Gentiles. We see all sorts of conflict between the Romans and the Jewish people. And yet, Jesus' focus, his unrelenting focus, is on how are you responding to me? 
And then he says in verse 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. So Jesus uses an image here of someone who did a crime against someone else, and that person is dragging him to the judge in order to get him punished. And along the way, Jesus says, get right with each other. Get right with each other so that you do not have to face judgment when you meet the judge. And his point is that he means to bring unity with his ministry. He's trying to bring unity to the people who are listening to him and rejecting him right at that moment. What he's saying to them is, just says you can be right along the way and avoid judgment. You could get right with me right now and avoid judgment. And one thing he's saying to us this evening, especially if you're not a follower of Christ right now, is you have an appointment with him and you need to get right with him before you leave. You need to get right with the Lord before you leave. Just as it was urgent for this person to settle with the other person he was walking with, it's urgent for all of us to settle with Christ before we leave this room because you don't know if you're going to have another day. And you can see right here, even at this moment, Jesus' heart behind his division is creating unity. He's wanting people to unify with him. He's wanting people to unify with his Father by repentance. So he calls them urgently to repent so that they can be one with him and so that they can be one with his Father. He's a kind heart. He has a good heart, and he has a bold heart. He came to bring division rather than peace, but the reason he, only reason he ever brings division is so that there can be ultimate and final peace. And he wants you to respond the same way. He wants you to live the exact same way. And so, yeah, and you just need to invite anyone here this evening who doesn't have peace with Christ yet, please, Come pray with me or anyone and talk to them. See, so, yeah, you don't leave this place without peace. So you don't leave this place without knowing Christ. And also ask yourself, who have you been avoiding a conversation with that you need to have a conversation with? Maybe your father, maybe your mother, maybe your best friend about what repentance looks like. Those are the things... That's what love looks like in this age before Christ comes back. It's having those conversations with those who need them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to taste and experience the wrath of God in our place so that we could be forgiven and healed so that we who were divided from you could be unified with you. And please give us the same heart for our neighbors and friends. That we would want them to have the same unity with you that we have. 
and that we would pursue gospel-centered division so that they could have that unity with you. Please help us not to gloss over conflict. Help us not to gloss over the call to repentance so that they don't perish, but that they live instead. Thank you for the chance to serve our neighbors, friends, families, and coworkers, God. Please make us bold like Christ to be able to do so and humble like him to love them in the process. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.